So this, this morning is pretty exciting because we have um, a special guest. Have you heard about our special guest? Uh, who? Yeah, no, we have a special. Really? Yeah, you should hear him. He's got a crazy, he's got a crazy story. Well, this is Charles, you guys. And so, uh, yes, please give Charles a welcome. Hi, everyone. Charles is a, a friend of mine, and he's going to tell you guys a pretty crazy story. And if, you, uh, if, if you've been watching the announcements for a few weeks now, you know that we'll be talking about his uh, journey out of North Korea. And so I, I kind of thought the place to start would be, if you are like me, you don't know a whole lot about North Korea. In fact, most of the world doesn't know a whole lot about mm -hmm. North Korea. And so I just wanted to, uh, before we even start on his story, talk about North Korea, uh, give us a little insight into life there, what the mm -hmm. country is about. And so just kind of give us an overview. Yeah, uh, of course. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. It is my honor to share my story with you. Uh, so, um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. So, uh, North Korea is the one of the brutal um, regime and it is most repressive country in the whole world. And basically, in North Korea, there is no freedom of religion, no freedom of thought, no freedom of speech, and there is no freedom uh, of travel, even. Uh, and the people there, uh, struggles to live everyday life, you know, trying to find food. Um, and the North Korea basically have three classes. So that classes begin with elite class and middle class and the lower class. So people are who in the lower class, like me, uh, they have no opportunities to go up. They are always in the bottom. Uh, if you're born farmers, you gotta be farmers. If you're born fac like factory workers, then basically you gotta stay there. But if we're born under uh, the regime, like elite class, then you will be have opportunity to be, uh, you, have, you, ha you have the chance to study abroad in China and uh, you get to control North Korea, basically. Yeah, and every day. Uh, so just so we're, everybody kind of understands is um, sort of like if you're familiar with the caste system in India, is there something similar in uh, North Korea? And it, depending on the family that you're born yeah. into, you <clears throat> don't get to determine what your job's going to be or your level of education or even where you're going to live. All of that is pretty much chosen for you right. before you're born, just depending on what family you're born into. Right, right, yeah, exactly. And then how does that determine? Who, like how, who, who gets to decide... And, and what is the determining factor and who's the, kind of the elites and things like that? Yeah, so, uh, so elite classes are very loyal to the regime, right? So for example, there was a Korea War in 1950 to 1953, and who served under Kim Il-sung, uh, Kim, Kim, Kim Il uh, they are very loyal to the regime. So they get to, uh, uh, they get to be the royal blood to the regime. But people who are like uh, landowners and people who had a lot of monies and who owned like companies during the war and who had a lot of monies and who had like uh, like a slaves at the time at a house, then those are the people who are really bad. It's like a bad blood. Yeah, so th that's how they determine uh, their royalty to the regime. So a lot of a lot of North Korea life is focused in on the Kim dynasty, your loyalty to them. Uh, and even the kind of worshiping them, is that right? Right, right, yeah. So uh, basically in school, you learn about the Kim's family's history, right? That's the, uh, that's the main concept. Every single one of the subject was embedded with Kim's like, history, right? So for example, like, uh, like our, for, for, for the rest of the world, like, we learned the history in a way that uh, Japanese surrendered uh, because the uh, United States dropped a bomb on Hiroshima and um, uh, Okinawa, and uh, they surrendered. But in North Korea, we learn it a little different. Uh, how we learn is that 
uh, Kim Il-sung destroyed uh, a head-to-toe armed Japanese, uh, Japanese army with a single, a single pine corn. Yeah, so that's, that's how we were taught. So all your history books are kind of revised uh, and, and focus in on the, the Kim family. Yeah, yeah. Kim, everything is focused on Kim's family, and everything has to relate it to, like, Kim Il-sung uh, defeated the, the United States that's trying to t- take over North Korea. Okay. And, and so part of, um, part of life there is worship of the Kim family, and so even in your homes, you have to have pictures of them you, and things like that. Yeah, right. So uh, every, in North Korea, every single one of the houses, there is a picture frame, a picture of the portrait of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, and now I believe there is a Kim Jong-il's portrait in North Korea, and there's inspection every once in a while, and uh, the security guards would storm into your house, and they would uh, look over the frame, and if there is a dust in the hand, then you will go to a detention center, like a labor camp, and you have to force the work there. Yeah. You were telling me um, that it was almost <coughs> difficult when you did get out of North Korea. Even when you were out, you almost still had this reverence, this, this uh, kind of worship that you had yeah. for, the, for the leader still, even in, when you were out. Yeah, right. So uh, when I first escaped North Korea, uh, I was in China, and, uh, you know, like, Chinese people doesn't care, you know, who's Kim Il-sung, who's Kim Jong-il, right? So they talk really bad about them, you know, because how the dictator is. And I would try to defend them because, no, he's the great leader in the whole world, you know. And I was looking for the words to defend him, you know. Yeah, so because the mentality that I had was so strong. Yeah, your whole life has been dedicated to learning about them and to, you know, uh, admiring them and things like that. Right, right, yeah. So tell us uh, a little bit about, well, let's just jump into your story. Um, And I know your story starts before you're even born because you are born into an interesting kind of family. Tell us about that. Right, yeah. So uh, I was born to a Chinese father and North Korean mother in North Korea. How that happened is that during 1950, my grandfather came out to North Korea as a Chinese soldier and after the war, uh, uh, ceasefire, um, they never, my grandfather never went back, never went back to North Korea. So he ended up staying in North Korea, and he met my grandmother. Uh, they didn't, my grandfather didn't speak any Korean. Uh, my grandmother didn't speak any Chinese, but somehow it happened. So uh, my I father think it's better that way. <laughs> <laughs> better. Maybe, maybe, yeah. but yeah. So um, it happened, and my father was born in North Korea. But when he was 34, I believe, he changed his citizen status. To Chinese, so he had the privilege because his father uh, served in North Korean War. And then um, during the time when uh, my father met my mother, he already had a family uh, of uh, family of four children. Uh, but he, uh, you know, I, my grandmother always told me that I was a mistake. Um, I wasn't supposed to be born, but uh, yeah. So I was, yeah. My father met my mother, and uh, you know, they didn't married, and they lived for. Uh, five years. Uh, my my father divorced my uh, first w- his first wife, and then he lived with my mother uh, without marrying her. Uh, and uh, when I was five, when I turned five, uh, my father abandoned me and my mother, and he left to China, and he never returned. And I lost my mother uh, six years later from starvation. So in that time, that <clears throat> that six year period. Uh, your mother had gone off to try to find your father, right, but yeah. unsuccessfully, and uh, along the way through lack of nutrition, things like that. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so after my father left, uh, before he left North Korea, he borrowed a lot of money from our neighbors, uh, and then he went to China. 
but he never returned. So debt collectors would come to her house and they would knock on all doors and like, where's your husband? I need my money back, where's my money? And my mom got really stressed, so she decided to go look, uh, look for my father um, by herself. And uh, she came back when I was nine, very ill, uh, and she had like a heart disease. <coughs> and then uh, she ended up you know, laying down in a hospital bed for 24-7, about a year. And I had to nurse her all the time. Uh, I went to hospital, bring food, you know, and come back home, bring food again. Um, and then eventually she passed away uh, because of also starvation and the illness that she had. Um, and then after, uh, yeah, and then my life became very, very simple, but very difficult. Um, I, you know, I needed to learn how to survive by myself, you know, um, beg um, begging for food from the stranger strangers on the street and battling starvations and freezing winter temperature. Uh, and then I ended up living with my aunt um, about a year until my father sent my stepbrother to rescue me and uh, take me into China. Well, uh, well let's pause for a sec because there's a lot that <laughs> is going on right there. So um, you go and you live with your aunt and your aunt encourages you to write letters. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So um, I know his story better than he knows his story. Yeah, right he, now. he knows my story okay. way better than I am. So <laughs> I'll just let you tell my story. I'm just kidding. So let me tell you what happened at age 11. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, when I was living with my aunt, so uh, my aunt forced me to write a letter to my father saying that, Father, I miss you. I need you here. You know, I wonder if you're doing fine. You know, I'm doing, I'm doing really well in North Korea, but I just miss you a lot. So I wrote a letter about a year, like almost like every day. And you, you, could, you could only write certain things because the government reads the letters before they go out, right? Right, right, right. So, like, the government would cut and open the letter and they would read it. And if it's fine, because you can't say that, oh, I'm starving in North Korea, you know, I'm dying here, because you can't say that. If you say that, the letter wouldn't go out because North Korea is utopia. You know, that's what we learn. But if they say that, then it's no good. So the government wouldn't send out the letter, so I had to um, fake it. And eventually, a year later, my father returns the letter to my aunt saying that, okay, thank you so much for taking care of my child. But what my aunt did was, <laughs> so she changed the letter uh, to an invitation. So uh, the original letter was, uh, thank you, but uh, she uh, changed the letter saying that if you come to China, I can help you. So which was like an official invitation is she brought that to the regime, the government, and saying that, okay, so I, ha I have the invitation, so I need a passport. And she can't get a passport without any money, so she sold everything in her house to get the passport. And then now she got the passport, but she doesn't have any money to travel to the border town because there is no freedom of travel. So she ended up blackmailing my father, saying that if you don't send me money, I'm going to kill your child and sell him as a meat, or I'm going to send him to orphanage. So my father got the letter, and he was shocked and like, what? So he sent um, my stepbrother to my um, aunt's house, and he, he rescued me, and uh, he um, helped me to escape North Korea for the first time. So your, your stepbrother was living in North Korea, and so he came to your aunt's house. Yeah. Took you out of your aunt's house. Right, right, yeah. And then ends <clears throat> up 
kind of is he hire he hires a, a, a smuggler? Yeah, smuggler. Right? Yeah. So he uh, so he was living at the North Korea at the time, and he was married, and he had a kid. Uh, and then uh, he bought a smuggler, and the smuggler um, bribed a security guard and saying that okay, so what time, what day, one kid's gonna swim across to your uh, uh, within your uh, range of the security um, um, the place. Um, and then, yeah, I was uh, safely assumed crossed because the guard, we already bribed the guard. And uh, my father was, was on the other side uh, with, a, uh, with a taxi cab. So it, <coughs> uh, I found that when I was doing my research and to kind of learn more about your story, um, from what I understand is there's really only one place that you can escape from North Korea, and that's across to the Chinese border because you can't go south. Um, and so there's only one place, and it's across the river. Is that right? Right, right, right. But uh, uh, there, so yeah, so there's a border that divides North Korea and China, and uh, it is called 38th parallel, and that is the most there. That is the most uh, heavily fortified militarized zone in the world. So it would be impossible. But I'm not saying there was nobody that escaped through there. There's a couple of people who escaped through the DMZ, uh, and uh, also there's another route is that through the sea is uh, through from um, um, Japan, so see through the Japan and come to South Korea, but that's impossible because South North Korean uh, uh, like uh, navies are always watching closely and there is like, they have to paddle it to South Korea and that's impossible. But there is some people did that actually. Uh, and then the last route is the safest and um, still dangerous, but the most guaranteed um, route, which is swimming across the river, which is less uh, effort and but still able but, to make but it. But even when you get to China, it's still, you're not, you're not really free because yeah. you could get caught there and they'll send you home, which we'll talk about. But yeah. the other thing is, um, is if you get caught there, um, or excuse me, if you don't get caught there, you're still in trouble because you're there illegally. And so the Chinese people, especially with women, will take advantage of them, sell them into sex slavery, things like that, because they can't report it. They can't do anything. Yeah, yeah, because uh, the women are highly vulnerable to sexual trading, you know, and uh, are forced to work on a sexual trading site because they have no identity in China, and the brokers or fake brokers are taking advantage of that. And uh, I know one sister that case, uh, she escaped North Korea when she was 18, and uh, she didn't pay to escape North Korea. And then the broker uh, said that, okay, I'll help you escape. And then after she escaped, uh, you have to pay me money. And she doesn't have any money, but she suggested that you have to go work in that field. You have to marry some guy in China. And then if you don't marry him, I'm going to uh, send you back to North Korea. So you, so you make it across. Uh, your dad's waiting for mm -hmm. you on the other side. Then what yeah. yeah, so uh, I arrived in China for the first time in 2008 when I was 14. Um, life there was so much better. Uh, I, I still remember thinking that there would be no more begging for a place to sleep overnight. But the happiness that I felt in China was only temporary because Chinese government didn't recognize North Korean refugees as refugees, but illegal economic migrants. So I was caught. Um, the ch uh, actually, a Chinese citizen reported me to the authorities because I didn't look like Chinese because at the time I was very skinny, I was very dark, and at the age of 14, that's very unusual. Um, so Chinese uh, citizens reported me to the regime, uh, to authorities, saying that oh, there's a North Korean kid. So that's how I got caught. And, um, yeah, and then I was sent back to North Korea. So they come to your, they come to your father's house, 
Uh, they take you away from from your dad. Yeah. They put you in prison <coughs> for a couple weeks in yeah, China. Yeah. And then take you back to North Korea. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I remember the day I lost all hope. Uh, I was in the back of a Chinese police truck, like chained to a couple of other North Koreans. And we turned a corner, and I could see the North Korean border in the distance. For two weeks, I have been kept in a Chinese jail, waiting to be sent back to North Korea. And I was terrified of being punished for leaving my country. And I was so sure that I'll be in big trouble as soon as I step back into North Korea. The North Korean secret police wanted me to confess that I was trying to defect to South Korea, but the truth was I went to China to find my father. I had no desire to defect and back him to understand. And I didn't confess, and after beating me for hours and interrogating me for days, they sent me to a detention center. So uh, I just don't want to miss this. Is after you're, you're caught and you're brought back, they take you into interrogation. Right. And interrogation is pretty, it's notoriously brutal, right? It's, it's brutal, yeah. So basically, if you were proven that you went to China to just, you know, survive, you know, find some food, try to work, but come back, that's fine. You'll just go to four years of labor camp, probably starve to death. But if you were to try to escape to South Korea, then there's no way out. So uh, the first day that I was in the, uh, the um, interrogation um, center, one lady uh, bit off her veins and committed suicide because of the harsh interrogation. They, w they wouldn't let you sleep. They wouldn't feed you. Uh, they would interrogate you. And, you know, there was no cell in that center of the interrogation center uh, when I got there in 2000, 2009 because there are so many people who have been caught. So I ended up staying in a small office, and uh, like I could hear like adults screaming right next to the, like my office, like, "Oh my God, like my my legs are broken. I'm, I'm pleading to death. Please forgive me, forgive me." You know? And that, yeah. So it was um, brutal, and um, that's why a lot of um, it, so that's why if you were uh, found out that you're trying to go to South Korea, then it's you know, better for them to just um, take their own lives than, you know, continue to go to the interrogation part. So if you make it through interrogation, then they're going to send you to a camp. Yeah, right. So uh, they're going to send us to a detention center where all the North Korean defectors are there. And then from there, uh, each different con each different province uh, officers will come and take them back to their home country, home uh, hometown. And uh, I was there for nine months in that detention center. Uh, and I was forced to work up to 18 hours every day. And I was only fed 150 kernels of corn a day. And there is a job for people who's counting the corn every day. So basically, 50 in the morning, 50, at, uh, 50 for breakfast, 50 for lunch, and 50 for dinner. And uh, people. They're like, they have to do everything to survive, right? So some people just um, like uh, have go out and just eating um, like a plant that you shouldn't supposed to eat. You know, people just picking out the corns out of their own poop uh, and people just catching like a live rat and just uh, e eating that because they're so hungry and they need to do whatever they can do to um, stay alive. Um, and, you know, the work that is really harsh, you know, because from, uh, from constructions, farming to, uh, like, just going in the woods and chopping down the woods, 
and you do that for seven days a week. And if it's raining and there is no work to do, then the government, the, the security guards will force you to go outside and move the bricks from point A to point B, and then they force you to be moving back from uh, point B to A. The reason why they force you to work and they feed you so less is that if you are full and if you are rested well, then you're thinking about defecting North Korea again. So you don't deserve to rest, you don't deserve to eat. And uh, that's the life of a criminal. Yeah. So you, you said uh, you're there for nine months and eventually they let you go. Yeah, so eventually um, I was released because I couldn't even stand up anymore. I had lost so much weight that I was worthless worker and they sent me to my stepbrother's house. So you get to your stepbrother's house and, and he helps you regain your strength. You, you, you get back on your feet, but yeah. now you've got to figure out what's yeah, next. What's next? So, uh, yeah, so I spent like weeks to trying to regain my strength, months to regain my strength, but without any money, I had no way to support myself. Even though I had my stepbrother, he said that he can't help me out anymore because um, like I, he, even though he helped me to escape North Korea, I was a criminal because, you know, he said that like, oh, if you are with me, then it's, it's, it, I, I would have bad reputations so I can uh, provide you anymore. And besides, during 2009, there was a currency devaluation in North Korea, basically making 1,000 to 100. And during that time, a lot of people um, lost a lot, like even their lives. A couple of families from my, my neighborhood, even they lost everything. So they um, ended up taking on their lives. Uh, <coughs> and then I, I soon began to working in a coal mine where I was paid only in rice. Six days a week, I would enter the cold, damp tunnels of the mine. And the most of most of other boys that were working in the mine were my age. We would push a thousand pounds steel coal cart miles into the mountain, then we'll crawl down the small tunnels with empty sacks and only return once they're full. And cave-ins were common, and I saw other boys lose their arms and legs as they're smashed under the rocks. And I watched friends die when the coal cart fell off the track and crushed them. There was no safety guarantees. And you're basically working for, a, working for a rise. And after working in the mine about a year, um, I have finally realized that I needed to uh, leave my country to get the freedom I deserve. And while I was in the detention center, uh, working 12 hours every single day, and while I was working in the coal mine, I thought about the life that I, in I had in China. You know, even the things that I could do, uh, the food that I could eat, that was really happy for me. That was freedom to me. So I wanted that life back. So one morning, uh, I stole uh, five flashlights. And instead of entering the mine, I walked up the path and began running. I sold those flashlights at the market, and I used the money to buy food. And I spent the next three months hiding from the police and waiting for my opportunity to travel to the border. But in North Korea, there is no freedom of travel. There are, there are checkpoints on all major roads, and it would be impossible for me to board a train that goes to the border town because I didn't have proper documents or even enough money. Um, on a humid day in August, I was lying down on a hillside. In the distance, uh, I saw a train come to stop and people were exiting out of the train cars. I was curious and I approached and uh, I realized the train was going to the border town. As the passengers boarded again, I joined the line. 
and the guard would ask for my papers and documents and I lied that my mother had them and that she was already on the train. Uh, he nodded and I, I headed straight for the train bathroom to hide. And for the next two days, I hid on the train. Sometimes I would have to climb out of the window and hide on the top of the train. Or, sometimes, or um, I would have to hide the, hit, the hitch between the two cars to avoid the guards. And if I was caught, I knew that I would be handed over to the authorities and most likely to end up in a labor camp. And I was almost the border town when the hand of a guard grabbed the back of my neck and dragged me to a holding cell on the train. Uh, there were two other boys in the room who had been cut too. As the guard locked the door to the cell, he told us that we would be handed over to the police at the next stop. And I thought about how terrible the detention center had been. The long days of manual labor, the sleepless night that I uh, spent memorizing the rules, and the constant feeling of hunger. I refused to, to happen again. And as the train uh, began to slow down for the next stop, I began to panic. I saw a window was unlocked, so I pushed it open and squeezed out of the small opening. I jumped off the moving train, rolled into a ditch, and began sprinting through some nearby trees. Two days later, um, uh, so I've, I walked for hours and uh, illegally boarded a second train uh, using the same method. Uh, and uh, two days later, I finally made it to the border town. And I remember uh, feeling happiness and excitement uh, when I reached the border because I never thought that I could make it there. But at the same time, I was terrified because I still had to cross the Yellow River. <coughs> but when I first escaped North Korea, there was a connection and there was a safety guarantee because um, my, uh, my, first, uh, my stepbrother bought a smuggler and the smuggler bribed the guard. But this time, it was completely on my own. I walked into the river that divides North Korea and China and hid in the tall grass for many hours waiting for the darkness. When I finally thought it was safe, I quietly waded into the water. But in the middle of the river, I slipped on a rock and let out a gasp. Immediately, a floodlight was on my back and I heard the security guard shouting at me. He said he would shoot me if I didn't turn back. I knew I was dead either way. Either he would shoot me, or I would obey and return to the shore only to be shipped off to labor camp and starve to death. <coughs> I decided not to turn back, and I kept waiting ahead. Each step took me further away from North Korea and closer to my dream of freedom. The guard kept screaming at me, but he never pulled the trigger. And five minutes later, I was dripping wet, but finally back in China. And I walked in China for three days uh, until somebody collapsed in the middle of a road. I was dehydrated, I was exhausted, and I was hungry. 
Uh, finally, after three days, my shoe fell apart and my feet got blisters and started bleeding. And I collapsed um, and I started to regret uh, why I left North Korea. And if I was in North Korea, I would probably have um, food in my stomach. I would have roof over my head. And now because I made, um, I escaped North Korea, I'll probably die here. I was desperate. I uh, got on my knees and I started to pray. So hold on real quick. <coughs> so for us, okay, praying makes sense, but you got to realize the context he's coming from is you're coming from a place where uh, there is no God, there is no religion, there is nothing, and then you start praying. Where did you get the idea to start praying? Uh, sorry, I failed to mention that. So uh, when I escaped North Korea for the first time in 2008, one pastor came to my house, and he held my hand, and uh, he t taught me how to pray. And uh, at the time, he gave me a small Bible and uh, a cross. But at the time, I didn't realize and I didn't bother to care what is Christianity. Um, and then when I was caught and I was in the detention center, while I was in detention center, I was devastated. And uh, I, you know, I started to think about what you know, uh, the pastor said, a little bit of like what he said, and uh, like the belief you know, of like, if I have that kind of belief, you know, then there would be a hope. You know? So I kept prayed in that detention center and even in a coal mine. You know, I, every, it was 12 hours long shift, and uh, every time that I go into the coal mine and coming out and going again, I didn't even like, know like, if I'm going to come back out alive. And praying, you know, I, I, I prayed to God you know, every day, um, and then... Uh, I asked you earlier, um, because, you know, <coughs> faith isn't talked about. There is no faith, right? No one's yeah. talking about it. And so I said, well, did you ever think about the big questions? You know, where do we come from? What happens when we die? Things like that. And you said, you know, most people, they don't think about those things. But you were telling me that you, you started thinking about those a little earlier on, like at age 10. Right, right, yeah. So um, when I was 10, um, that question... So after watching an animation called, um, I'm not sure if you guys know, uh, Prince of Egypt. And uh, yeah, so after watching that uh, animation, I started... So it got snuck in. Somebody snuck in the movie. Yeah, yeah. So, and uh, you got to like undercover watch the yeah, Prince of Egypt. Yeah, so okay. um, I, you know, I, it's highly illegal because there is a Christians and underground church in North Korea. You know, even though nowadays, um, but I, I'm not really sure how many um, North Koreans are Christian, how many percentage of them are Christian, because if you were to Christian in North Korea and you got caught by the regime, then you'll be sent to political labor camp that where you will never get out and your family will be punished because of you too, uh, because of you. Um, so, you know, that's highly illegal and it's really dangerous in North Korea. So I'm not sure how many are those. So watching that animation itself is really dangerous too, because it's talk it's talking about you know uh, uh, Christianity, right? It's it's about it's about God and it's about uh, Moses. And uh, after watching that uh, after watching the film, I start to question like, oh, there is you know something out there, you know, there's God out there, you know, looking over me, and is there really a God, you know, and and then when I came to China, and then the, God, God, the pastor came to our house and held my hand, and he uh, prayed for me. So I had a, yeah, I had a, like, 
feelings of like Christianity, you know, and uh, like faith. Yeah, faith. So, okay, so back to the story is you uh, have collapsed. You're praying on this road in China, and you think this, this might be it. This yeah. might be the end. Yeah, so I thought to myself, well, this is it. I'm never going to make it. And I started to pray, uh, and I told him, like, I don't want to die. Um, I don't want to end up here like this. And then I, pr- I, I cried about um, 20 minutes, and uh, miraculously, uh, one Chinese guy drove a motorcycle. He doesn't have anything to do within the forest, and uh, why would he stop? And he stopped, and uh, he realizes that I'm from North Korea. Uh, he took me to his house, and uh, he gave me food. He gave me medication for my feet. He gave me clothing, and he gave me some money. And the next morning, uh, he's he uh, let me sleep overnight at his house, and the next morning, he connected me to a South Korean missionary. And uh, the South Korean missionary asked me if I wanted to go to South Korea. So during that time, my understanding of South Korea was that South Korea is really poor, and North Korea, you know, and if you go to South Korea, they will make you their slave, you know. So I didn't really want to go to South Korea, so I said, no, thank you, I'm trying to find my father in uh, uh, in China, but the truth is, South Korea is way much more richer than North Korea, <laughs> way much more. <clears throat> um, and uh, the pastor, uh, the missionary, uh, uh, said that, okay, so if I get your bus, uh, will you find your find your dad? So yeah, sure. And uh, as he promised, uh, he got me a bus, um, and uh, the bus took me right in front of my father's place. And my father. Like, as soon as I knocked on the door, and he opens, and opens the door and sees me, and he was panicking, and he was shocked, and there is no word to describe his facial expressions. And uh, he asked me, like, he started to question me, like, how did you get here? Do you think it's like a neighborhood? You can just walk in and in and out? It's not that simple, but are you a criminal? Are you, are you running away from something? You know, and I told him that, like, I thought about the life that I, I had in China, you know, when I was living with you, you know, and while I was going to um, labor camps, you know, I was in uh, the coal mines, I thought about this life every day, and I wanted the life back, and that's why I'm here. And I lived with my father about five months, uh, and uh, we decide, I decided that um, I wanted to escape North, uh, China again, because like, I have no future in China because I have no identity in China, so rest of my life I have to hide. Uh, and then my father found me a broker that smuggles out North Korean refugees from, North, uh, from China to Southeast Asia. Uh, so uh, I embarked on another long journey to Southeast Asia. I was in a bus for a week, seven days. And the uh, entire time, uh, bus ride, every, to- every time the bus stops, I felt this, uh, my heart pounding in my throat because there are a lot of secu- security, there's so many security guards that are trying to catch North Korean refugees that defecting, leaving China to South Korea. And if I was caught, then I, my life is over, uh, it's game over. So I was so ner- uh, terrified, the entire time I prayed, please get me through this. And eventually, um, I made it to uh, Southeast Asia. And um, in lack of better words, the most soggy thing was um, 
like I got to Southeast Asia and uh, I wanted to go to South Korea as refugees, but the South Korean re uh, government didn't recognize me as a refugee. So just to, just to make sure everybody's on the same page, is you make it all the way to Southeast Asia, they put you in like a refugee detention center. Detention like center. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're applying as to to be a refugee in South Korea. In South Korea. And they say no, you're Chinese. Yeah. So basically, so you're that's in, what they so say. you're in China, and they say no, you you're, you're North, North Korean. Korean. Yeah. You need to go back, and yeah. and so no no one will like, will let you. Yeah, in. yeah. No one will accept me, right? Okay. And um, that was that was the most devastating time of my life. Because even though, you know, labor camp, detention center, that was my home, right? And uh, even the coal mine, that's also my home. It's my home country. But I am stuck in the middle of nowhere, and I'm hoping resettlement was my only hope. But that hope is disappearing in front of my eyes. And that they said, you know, I want to help you. We want to help you, but I cannot change the law. So they're, they're threatening to send you pretty much back to North Korea. Again. Yeah, I was, I was, so there was like North Korean uh, immigration uh, cell, and then there is like an international refugee cell, and I was in a North Korean refugee cell, and, and then I was transferred to the international refugee uh, a cell. And I really thought of, um, I really thought of taking my own life because I was so devastated, and if I go back to North Korea, I know what will happen to me. And then, um, miraculously, uh, I met um, uh, the North Korean Chinese um, missionary that try, tried to go to um, South Korea, but he didn't get accepted because he has the Chinese identity and Chinese passport. Uh, and then he, uh, he, yeah, he taught me about Jesus. Uh, he uh, gave me also like really good lessons about the Bible, and he taught me how to pray, and we sang in the cell. And then um, about about a uh, about a month in the cell, um, like I had this feeling that maybe like North, uh, South Korea is not the only way. And then I wanted to talk to UN uh, about going to uh, some other countries. And then I grabbed the um, the security guard and the hey, I want to talk to UN. And then UN uh, came out and I said, I, wanna, I wanted to go to America. And for most people, it would take them six months to a year to get the first process interview. So it's like first interview, second interview, third interview, fourth interview, and then like hospital to check up your body and then plane ticket. So that takes about six months to a year. But for me, I got the first interview within a week. And then I was already on the plane to come to the United States within three months. So I was blessed. So uh, I know we're running out of time, and so I want to make sure that we hit two more things. Is um, One, I find a really interesting story, which is about a stolen pair of shoes. So tell us <laughs> that real quick. Okay, yeah. So uh, when I was in North Korea, the detention center, the first detention center I was in, uh, there was one guy uh, who wanted my shoes because uh, I was just came out from China. I had shiny, comfy, nice-looking shoes, and uh, that guy wanted my shoes. And I said, "No, I don't want to give him my shoes." And I mean, he was kind of like a head of the cell. So if I refused, like I don't know what would happen to me. 
So I took off, because like he had like really like, like, like fell, fell in apart shoes, you know, like I don't know when it's gonna die, tomorrow or today. And I had to trade in. Um, and um, like after when I resettled, I, I mean after I came to Southeast Asia, I saw a f familiar face and I didn't believe my eyes. And like, wait, I feel like I know that guy. And I, I approached them and like, hey, uh, didn't you steal like 15-year-old like uh, kids' shoes, you know, when you're in North Korea? And he refuses. Oh, no, no, I, I, I didn't steal any of, you know, shoes or anything. And I asked him again, oh, like, oh, I'm that guy, you know, like, that who you stole your shoes from? And he was like, oh, my God, that's you. And uh, oh, my gosh, that's you. And, and then he tells me a story, right? So uh, he wanted to escape from that, uh, so like uh, earlier I mentioned, um, so uh, that's the, the in, like a detention center for the most North Korean refugees and each province people will, uh, the police officers will come and take them to their home hometown. Uh, and during that transaction, he wanted to escape, but he didn't have really good shoes. And uh, he had a paper clip under his tongue and uh, he, while the police officers fell asleep on the train, he, um, he unlocked the handcuff and he escaped and then he came to Southeast Asia before me. And I felt like uh, meeting like a, like a, like a hometown like, um, like friend, you know, old friend. <laughs> it felt, yeah, and um, he was so thankful to me that he gave, like, he gave, uh, I, gave my sh I gave him my shoes and that he was so appreciated that he bought me food through the entire time that he was in, in that um, international detention center. And uh, now I'm thinking back, that was totally worth, worth it. You know, the shoes, <laughs> was really, really worth it. Yeah, it's good trade. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> That's crazy. So uh, last question is along your, your journey, you've had so many, either you could call them coincidences, I'd probably say miracles, where you met certain people at just the right time and, and you were able to uh, continue your journey until you found freedom. Um, why do you think that happened? Why you? Yeah, so uh, I really struggled with those questions for a long time. Why me? Because, you know, like, that could happen to anybody, you know? Like, why did I get a chance to survive? Why did I survive in a detention center? Like, why am I... Uh, Salma starved to death, and why did the coal cart fall off the other side of the rails, crushing my friend instead of me? And why did the, why did I get a chance to jump off the train and those two other boys didn't? You know, and I struggled with those questions for a long time. And I feel I know that like why I'm here is that you know there are 25 million of North Korean people that are going through the same struggle every single day until nowadays. And you know, uh, media portraits a lot on South North Korean regime, you know, about nuclear weapons, you know, about um, about the war, you know, about like Kim Jong Un's like crazy haircut, you know, and <laughs> how. Yeah, so, but I think what's missing is the stories of North Korean people, you know, and and I think God wants me to use in a way that, like. He wants me to tell my story to people so that I raise awareness of what's happening in North Korea. And it's really important that, um, like, 
like normalizing, you know, like humanizing the North Korean people, you know, as, as the same people, you know, and I want to help North Korean refugees, you know, uh, it's like dream from God and dream for God, you know, so. Well, you guys help me uh, thank Charles for being here with us this weekend. Thank you. I'm going uh, to pray for us real quick, and, uh, and then he's going to be out available in the lobby. So let me pray for us really quick. Lord God, thank you so much for Charles. Uh, thank you for his story that you have brought him here and that he can share uh, what's going on in, in his life and in the country, uh, North Korea. And uh, we would just, um, one, be incredibly grateful for what you have given us here um, and also be able to um, play a part in what you're doing in his life and, and, uh, and the other refugees, and that we would just pray that you would comfort them, bring them peace, and eventually bring them freedom. And so, Lord God, we thank you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.